Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm in a small group of six friends. We call ourselves the COVID Circle. We started gathering in our respective backyards, usually around a fire pit, in April of 2020 and have been meeting every two to three weeks since then. We craved human company other than our families after spending four weeks locked in our homes and trying to follow the news about a pandemic that seemed like something out of a movie. Original rules were to bring your own everything, chair, food, and drink of choice. These were often marathon sessions starting at six and ending at midnight. How soon can you start? The urgent text would ask. At first, we relieved ourselves behind garages or bushes depending upon the yard as the night went on. Around July, someone thought it would be okay to use the indoor bathroom as long as you wore a mask. As time went on, we agreed that if the host had patio furniture, we could use it. What did we talk about? Everything and nothing. Where the world was headed and whether we could get through the next week. There were many clear nights with moon rises and stars And while the rain drove us into a garage at one point, when the snow came, we dug out the fire pit and drew the blankets around ourselves. And if you were driving around West Hartford around midnight on the right night, you might see a group of three walking down Ellsworth, camp chairs and coolers slung over our shoulders, singing along with Everybody Hurts as it played out of a Bose Bluetooth speaker, traditionally the last song of the night. I'm pretty sure this will ebb away as the world opens up again. Everybody hurts. All right, that es- that essay started out as an email to me, and it, it is the thing that ignited the idea for this show, a listener suggesting that this story, the story that you just heard her tell, uh, was like a lot of other stories out there, that there would be people, no matter how much of a hardship we imagine the pandemic to have been, that there would be people who had experiences that they would miss. And I knew right away that that was true. Uh, and so we decided to do this show. The person who wrote that prefers to remain anonymous. I think a lot of people are going to recognize Margaret Atwood's voice, but, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Margaret Atwood would not relieve herself on people's shrubbery. You know? I think that's out of the question. All right. So um, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the fact that, yes, I mean, nobody likes a pandemic. Nobody liked this pandemic. There's been horrible tragedy and loss. Uh, and and yet, and yet there are these things that linger on, things that people will miss. Yes, so COVID nostalgia is what we're talking about here to uh, help us talk about it. And we have some other essays uh, also that we'll play. Uh, here to t- help us talk about it is Devin Powers, Associate Professor at the Klein College of Media and Communication at Temple University, the author of On Trend, The Business of Forecasting the Future, which I wish I knew about it about four days ago because I could have used it. Uh, but uh, I suppose that's the case with forecasting in general. Uh, but she wrote, um, Devin Powers wrote uh, The Coming Nostalgia for uh, Hypernesting, uh, and we're going to talk about this now. Uh, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, Colin. It's great to be here. Do you want to react to that essay? I bet you you do. 
Yeah, I thought it was beautiful. And, um, you know, I definitely have had experiences like that with my COVID pod of friends that, you know, always the same group of people, often not that much new happening in our lives, but yet there's something really comforting about that. So is is that your equivalent of that? Is there a thing that you specifically, uh, you, you talked to for the essay, do a lot of other people, is there a thing that you specifically are going to miss? We're still in this kind of liminal space right now where, you know, I mean, I, I've been vaccinated for a really long time, but um, but not everybody else has, and we don't really know how this plays out. But as you look towards whatever the end is, is there something that you are already aware of relinquishing? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Uh, one thing that I've been doing during the pandemic is a music club with friends. Uh, we meet once a week on Wednesdays, um, and it's people from all across the eastern United States and Canada. Um, there's about 10 of us. And we listen to music and tell stories. And we've been doing that since late March of 2020. And as the world opens up again, uh, you know, we keep talking like, is this going to be the last week? Is this going to be the last week? You know, and um, as much as, you know, I'm I'm excited to be able to travel again and uh, see family and friends, uh, there's something I'll miss about sitting in front of the computer with these people I've gotten to know very well. And, I, mean, I mean, theoretically, you could keep doing that indefinitely, but is there a way in which it's kind of tied to, it's like London during the Blitz or something, there's a way in which it is something you're doing as part of sheltering in place? Yeah, I do think that it has a sort of pandemic aspect to it. And I also think that as people's schedules get busy, you know, prioritizing sitting in front of a computer for two hours um, is not going to be at the top of people's lists every week. And I think that's just a reality as, you know, life starts to normalize, whatever that means. All right. So, uh, by the way, if as we go along here, if people are sitting in front of their uh, computer for two hours uh, and they want to send a tweet. Uh, or perhaps on their phones. WNPR Colin is the place to send it. We were going to ha- invite calls, but we have so much ground to cover and we have some other essays uh, to to listen to. And we're going to do that right now. Um, this is, uh, I should say, the person at the beginning who is actually not Margaret Atwood is a friend of mine, somebody I know pretty well. This is a, another friend of mine, uh, Ilza Christ. Uh, her essay is going to be voiced by the um, immortal Diane Orson, a deputy news director and uh, Southern Connecticut bureau chief of these fine uh, radio stations. I was a young girl in Latvia when World War II ignited Europe and eventually took me from my family, my home, and the normalcy I'd known. As the war was still raging, my mom and I and several relatives became part of the stream of refugees trying to survive the chaos and devastation. We had no clear sense of destination or expectation how the journey would end. We lived in the moment, and feelings of despair and terror were as pure as the brief moments of exhilaration when the shelling stopped. Now I'm a bit startled that COVID has stirred up some similar feelings. I'm an easy target for the virus. Therefore, as many others, I spent the past year alternating between isolation and what felt like a constant state of siege, hoping each day the bullet would not find me. I love to cook, but even groceries and basic necessities sometimes felt like they could explode in my hands and be the last things I touched. My daughter sent me flowers, and in the excitement, I couldn't remember if I'd washed my hands after I'd handled the wrapping and spent the next two weeks waiting to see if that could have been the fatal package. I became cautious with objects that were touched by hands I love. 
Christmas approached and I felt apprehensive. My daughters live on the other side of the country. My son and family live nearby, but it wasn't safe for us to gather inside for Christmas dinner as we usually do. The day was dark and rainy, but by mid-afternoon the rain stopped and as the winter's day early darkness approached, my son, his wife, and my grandchildren arrived with those large outdoor heaters we associate with European cafes. The patio was arranged, the heaters lit the way, and warmed us. I brought out long-stemmed glasses and good wine. We talked, opened a few gifts, and watched the mist on the pond in the back of my house. And somebody finally said, can we do this again, even after the pandemic? In wartime, we improvise and distill happiness. During this COVID war, every encounter with a friend or family member, as well as milestone occasions and holidays, was choreographed by time and distance, frequently measured by the weather. And as we danced around each other, we learned to see each other more clearly and acknowledge and treasure every smile and gesture. And now for me, the shelling has stopped even though that's not the case for all. As I feel the warm spring sun, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude, yet not wanting to let go of that searing intensity and awareness that governed every hypervigilant moment of the pandemic that took nothing for granted when a walk with a friend or a wave from a neighbor fed my soul. Uh, a lot there. <laughs> that Christmas story just slays me every time. She told it to me over coffee a few weeks ago, and I insisted that it be part of this essay. And so, yeah, Devin, I, 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 there's a lot there, obviously, that we could unpack. But let's sort of start with this idea. This is one of the few people uh, around who can tell you not only what it was like to be a child in Europe as World War II was raging, but what it was like to be a displaced person, to go through just you know incredible uh, amounts of tumult and, and chaos and, and yeah, you know, I think you found in reporting this thing, too, as you went back to the 1918 uh, flu epidemic, th- there were some ways in which people react to this with something other than pure revulsion. Yeah, I think when people go through something very difficult um, and they go through something very difficult together, that gives a sense of um, of connectedness to the other people who went through it. And it gives a sense of like grit and resolve, like I did this. Right. And so I think when people, you know, what I saw in the archives of um, interviews that were recorded in the 80s of people who were children during the 1918 pandemic, um, you could listen to them and they would tell stories about, you know, horrific things, um, but they would tell them with almost the sense of um, awe at their own strength of getting through it. And I think we'll see that, too, with this pandemic as well. Yeah. I mean, one of the... um... Uh, we should say that you yeah, you listen to these tapes of people who had survived that 1918 pandemic. People should read the essay because the things that people say are really interesting. But I was also really struck by a quote in your essay by Tanir Oxman, uh, associate professor of English at Marymount, Manhattan, studies memory and grief, explains that, quote, thinking you can come out of something horrific. There's a kind of euphoria that comes from that. And when Ilza and I were talking, she said something very, very similar to that, that you know, when the shelling stops and you're alive, there is something about that. And, and, and I, I feel very much as though, and I think you had a, you were of a completely different age than I was, but for me, 9-11 was very much like that. And going to New York, getting into New York pretty quickly after 9-11 and, you know, hanging around Union Square, and there was this sort of sense, uh, you know, uh, in all the horror, 
but there were all these pictures of loved ones and candles everywhere and people playing music. And, you know, the Japanese have this term. I think it's called mon, mono no awari. I'm probably not saying it right. It's the pathos of things. It's the, the sensitivity to ephemera, the, the notion that impermanence uh, is and transience are built into the human condition and they're worth a certain kind of gentle sadness. But there's also a kind of strange beauty in, in all of that. And I don't think we get that in most situations unless it's really we're sort of whacked in the face with it the way we are in, in the midst of a big disaster. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about survivor's guilt, but I think there's also a sense of survivor's joy. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell actually talks about that in the book Blink as well. Um, and when, uh, you know, I lived in New York City during 9-11, I was in my early 20s. And uh, when I think back to 9-11, I think about how much people loved New York after that moment. There were signs all over the city and t-shirts and bags that said, I heart New York more than ever. And there was just this sense of we have been through this together. Uh, there was a real sense of joy in connecting with other people and heartfelt care about how other people were doing. Um, that is so often, unfortunately, absent in how we go about our day to day. And I think the pandemic has resurrected a lot of those similar kinds of um, sentiments. So in your uh, essay, you evoke a uh, sort of lifestyles theorist named Faith Popcorn. I, I lived I lived through the, paper, the Faith Popcorn era in addition to living through 9-11 and lots of other things. Uh, she was the one who really you know, coined the phrase or at least promulgated the phrase uh, cocooning. Uh, and obviously cocooning is something that we've uh, – has been less of an elective and more of a requirement uh, during this time. So I don't know. How does that sort of play into whatever sorts of nostalgia we might feel about that? Well, you know, cocooning is just staying at home and nestling with your creature comforts if you have them. So, you know, all of the home delivery and crafting and baking of bread and making sourdough starters and sewing and things like that that people have been doing um, to really make your home space kind of your own. Um, that's what Faith Popcorn was talking about happening in the 80s. But really what we've seen is a recurring sort of sense of just the home becoming more of our every place. We work here, we play here, we enjoy life here. Um, and I do think that for many people, you know, um, that home space has become like really comfortable. Um, and thinking about, you know, I recently, um, for instance, just like went for a long drive and just traffic, right? <laughs> traffic and encountering other people and just realizing like, how irritating sometimes that can be. So it's like, as much as it's wonderful to rejoin the world, uh, there's also a lot of things that we've avoided um, by spending so much time at home. All right, we'll take a break. We're going to come back with more of this topic after the proverbial this. So something I got really into during COVID that I don't want to give up is reading for fun. And I know there wasn't really anything stopping me from reading when there's not a pandemic going on. But I guess, you know, reading for fun was just something I got out of the habit of doing in recent years. I'm not totally sure why, but I think it was just easier to like turn on Netflix or scroll on my phone after a long day of work. 
So I started off the pandemic by reading this awesome sci-fi series called The Vorkosigan Saga by Lois McMaster Bujold. And it was a great series for pandemic escapism because it's set in space or like other planets in the distant future. And the main character is so funny. And I like knew I could always count on these crazy humorous adventures in my fictional world to totally immerse myself in when everything was so terrible and bleak in the real world. I am hoping that in addition to like hanging out with friends and, you know, like going into buildings that aren't my house, I'll also find some time to keep reading all of my fun space adventures. So that was also Margaret Atwood. Uh, I didn't realize she had so much trouble finding time to read. No, that was, uh, you know, that was Carmen Baskoff, one of the producers of Where We Live, the always popular Carmen Baskoff. So uh, Devin Powers is with us, um, the author of On Trend, The Business of Forecasting the Future. Uh, But more relevantly for our topic today, and our topic today, if you're just tuning in, is the, the idea that we will be nostalgic for certain aspects of the pandemic. When the pandemic is good and gone, there will be things that we look back towards with some longing or wistfulness. So, I, you know, I, I don't know what you heard in that, Devin. I guess I'm sort of hearing Carmen also saying something that I think a lot of people feel, which is that the confinement and reduction of choice that uh, went hand in hand with the pandemic um, kind of led you to sort of rediscover certain parts of yourself. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And what I also hear in that is that, you know, in the pre-pandemic times, many of us were sort of running a mile a minute, you know, working and then going out and traveling and taking children from here to there, appointment to appointment. And once you take all of that away, um, you have a lot more time and you have uh, maybe less choice about what you can do with that time. But, you know, you have to find you have to be creative to find options. So um, personally, I've been doing a lot of walking around my neighborhood and never before the pandemic would I stop in the middle of the day to take a walk unless I was like, you know, having a a complete meltdown, right? Um, Would never do that. But now it's something that I do every single day. Right. You know, uh, yesterday I was in New Haven and I have a family member who's being treated for cancer and I can't go into the area uh, where I bring him for treatment uh, and because of COVID uh, and because they have to be incredibly careful with people who are immunosuppressed. And there were a bunch of things that had to be done. And so I was sort of like, you know, loose in New Haven for about six hours. Uh, and and it was raining uh, a lot of the time. And But, you know, and I know New Haven pretty well. I went to college there and stuff like that. But there was that idea of being physically and mentally present in a place of noticing things. And the truth is there are buildings that I walked by for four years uh, in college that I really had never looked at. And, and and that idea, I think, too, this sort of chop, carry, chop wood, carry water notion of whatever you're doing, be a little bit more present in it. Yeah, walk around your neighborhood, Devin, and really for the first time notice a certain door uh, that you've walked by a lot of times before. That's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think also just spending more time outside. You know, I live in Philadelphia. Um, I consider myself very much a city mouse, but I have spent more time in parks and nature walks and hikes in the last year than I probably did in the previous decade. (laughs) You know, just uh, because and, you know, when you spend time that way, you you notice just the the beauty of your surroundings. Um, And it's been a real uh, a real boon, I think, during this time, the pandemic. 
I, you know, it, it, it's an interesting history, I mean, it's an interesting moment in the history of human evolution for the pandemic to come, right? I think if the pandemic had come, say, in 1960 or 1980, uh, it might have been a very different experience. But we had already turned into these people who live a lot of their lives through screens, uh, through through the possibility of doing interactive things uh, in, in that space of the Internet. And I'm, I'm wondering, I, I don't know, do you have thoughts about... What happens now? I mean, we might have used screens more, but you're making an argument, well, maybe in some ways we saw the limits of what that could provide us and then went looking for other things outdoors. Yeah, I think it's actually both. You know, I rarely do. I think that it's one or the other. I think it's both and. So at the same time, I think you've seen a acceleration in terms of what people will do on screens. You know, I've been to birthday parties, uh, funerals, I've been to social events, happy hours, um, exercise classes through screens in ways that I never would have even a year and a half ago. But I think also in the times when I personally have been disconnected from screens, I want to really disconnect. You know, it's not taking my phone and sitting in a park bench, right? It's (laughs) leave the phone at home and just go to the park um, and just really talk to the person that I'm with if I happen to be with a person. Um, or just observe what's around me if I'm not if I'm alone. So um, I think that that's the you know that's the current that I see that some things will become much more concentrated and much more focused um, on the sort of virtual uh, and other things people will just desire to disconnect even more. Yeah, this is something that I'm going to come back to with the guests we have on in the final segment of the show. But it seems to me one of the things that we need to do now is to, first of all, remember the things that we liked enough to excite nostalgia in us subsequently and and remember to choose those things and kind of work out some kind of balance. I think we live a lot of our lives without meaning to. We live a lot of our lives somewhat passively. It's kind of like people tell you to be in the office for eight hours, so that's what you do, you know, or people tell you you have to drive there, so you go there. And and I'm, I'm wondering maybe we'll get better with choices and thinking, well, no, I really need to be here doing this. It would be so much more meaningful. Um, hey, before we run out of time here, I mean, this whole period has been accompanied by an incredible other reckoning uh, in the history of the United States with, with race and with violence. Uh, and one thing that I noticed is that in that first wave of Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter protests, one thing that was happening, I think, is that because multi- multiple generations were housed together, more than they typically are, young people said to their parents, oh, no, we've got to go, not just me, but you, mom and dad, you've got to come with me. We've got to go out and stand in front of the town hall and do a vigil, whatever it is that's happening. It's been kind of an interesting thing, the way that that's all kind of ignited. So and I, I know this is in your essay, too. So give us some thoughts here. Yeah, you know, I think COVID really pulled back the curtain for a lot of people. Um, And because the pandemic played out so um, inequitably, you know, with black and brown people and lower income people getting poorer health care and more often really terrible outcomes with the disease, um, I think that just um, alerted people in this very acute way to a lot of the um, inequality and racism that's been happening. And then you add on top of that George Floyd and police shootings, and you add on top of that people being at home and maybe not at work, like you said, multi-generational households, a lot of pent-up anxiety, and you just have a powder keg that just, um, I think that's what we saw last summer with just the explosion of of outrage. Um, So I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think it's just, I think it's 
it's sort of a, a, a natural outcome of what happens when you have all of these converging forces happening at the same time. You know, Devin, it's a funny thing about those multi-generational households, because I think those are going to be processed different, differently, depending on the person, uh, in terms of that, this whole question of post-COVID nostalgia. I mean, I'm aware of some households where, for example, you know, the the sort of Generation Z uh, kids, so to speak, who are back in the house with their parents are saying, well, no, this has been really great. <laughs> I really yeah. like this a lot. This has been, I don't really regard this as this horrible, horrible time. I'm not 100% sure how the parents feel about maybe reacquiring some of the space that they gave up to those offspring. But I mean, it's something we haven't talked about so far about anyway, about that idea of reconnecting. Yeah, I have a couple of friends who were supposed to send kids off to college this year and didn't. Um, and as much as there's been some, you know, clashes around like freedom and, you know, going out and whatnot that younger people want to do. I also know that my friends have been so grateful to have an extra year with their kids. Um, and I do think that those those families have had a way um, to connect to one another and do things like play board games or, you know, watch a movie together that the um, that the teenagers had already outgrown and were kind of past. But now, you know, this year they've come back to that. And that's been really special. Um, yeah, I have uh, one family that I'm close to where I, I recently discovered very late to the party uh, the animated series Rick and Morty, which I thought was just hilarious. And so, and I knew that one of my nephews would definitely be somebody who watched that. And so I asked uh, his mother, I said, you know, is he into Rick and Morty? Uh, and she said, I don't know, I'll check. And then the next conversation I had with one or the other of them, I think it was with him, I said, yeah, I had guessed that you were into Rick and Morty. He goes, yeah, I hadn't watched it for a while, but now mom and I are watching the entire series episode <laughs> by episode. Uh, so thanks for bringing that up. That was really terrific. And, you know, I it's, the board game stuff is nice, too, but we probably still are streaming people and screen people. But this is, you know, a good chance to do that or watch Ma Rainey's Black Bottom with three generations of, you know, of people and kind of talk through that at the end. Yeah, um, I have a friend who has uh, kids that range from about 14 to 19, and he watched The Outsiders with his family, you know, yes. <laughs> which was like his dream. And actually, you know, the kids, the kids like that movie all right, too. So... All right. So, um, well, thanks for talking to us uh, about this. Our theme today is post-COVID nostalgia. Obviously, we'll be glad to get rid of this disease, but what will we be sorry to throw away with it when it goes? Devin Powers, associate professor at uh, Klein College of Media and Communication at Temple University, the author of On Trend, The Business of Forecasting the Future. Uh, read her article also about this in The Atlantic. We'll be back with more with another Atlantic writer. We didn't plan it this way. That is the number that you can call to uh, give your pledge of support to Connecticut Public Radio. But if you don't want to talk on the phone, you can also go to WMPR.org slash donate. Uh, there's a clean layout there for you to uh, to uh, figure that out. Uh, I'm Kat Pastor. I'm here with Jeff Cohen. He's the news director here at Connecticut Public. And we are here today to ask for your pledge of support. You're listening to The Colin McEnroe Show. You love The Colin McEnroe Show. The Colin McEnroe Show has big plans. 
But we need support in order to put those plans into action. And the only way we can do that is uh, by asking for money from our listeners because <laughs> uh, we are That's a right. listener-funded station. Uh, we are not beholden to advertisers. So, uh, you know, everything we do is in service to our listeners. Um, and uh, we take that very seriously, especially Colin. I know he always says that if uh, if he's not feeling a show, he's not putting it on the air. He will only put on just the highest quality of show. I think he does, like, uh, of every 10 shows, two make it to air. I think so, I think too. That, <clears throat> yeah. Something like that. Two yeah, ideas, he just at kills, least. He just kills. He just... For sure. And I think oh, yeah. that that's a good thing. That's not you true, but it... No, no, he, I mean, he has really high standards. You're right. He has very high mm-hmm. standards, and, and so do the producers of that show. That is very true. Betsy, Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you should see uh, the document, the, the Google Docs uh, that we go through, um, that they're all writing it, like working ideas out, reworking them, and then, you know, either that one that one's a go or that one we're just never going to talk about again. And we're putting that idea to rest right now. Um, so uh, that's, that speaks to the quality of the programming that you get, not only on the Colin McEnroe Show, but across the Connecticut public platform. Um, over the past year that I've been here, the station has expanded so much. There's three new shows, Audacious, Seasoned, and Disrupted. Um, there's Where We Live had a relaunch. Uh, the news just keeps coming. I'm sure you're feeling that, Jeff. We're tired. But yeah. we're, we're hanging in. We're <laughs> hanging in. But it, I think you're right, Kat, is, is, is that over the past year in the pandemic, we haven't slowed. We've grown. We're growing our investigative unit and we're hiring people as we speak. We're growing um, our reporting staff as we speak. And we're bringing out, like just like you said, new shows, new things for you to listen to and enjoy and things that will make you think. Uh, and just learn more about where you live. And we need you to support that. We need you to support all of that. So call 1-800-584-2788. That is the number. Uh, and there'll be nice folks on the other end willing to take uh, your money for <laughs> uh, your, you know, your, it's like, it's you signing up. You know, I actually had a an opportunity, Kat, uh, earlier uh, today to meet with some people who are funding some of our internship programs. And the pride that donors feel, uh, donors big and small, donors who give what they can uh, as, as, a, as a sign of commitment to this station and to this news operation and to this storytelling operation and this journalism operation, is um, just makes me smile. People really feel a connection as they should. This is your public radio station, your Connecticut public. Please do support it. 1-800-584-2788. That's right, or at WMPR.org slash donate, um, which uh, if you if you go to that page, you'll see it's a pretty clean layout. You could either become a one-time donor, which means that you just give your amount at one time uh, and, and uh, call it a day, or you can become a monthly sustaining member, which is kind of like a set it and forget it thing. You select an amount to be taken out of your checking account um, every month, and that amount can change because we know that people's situations change. So, uh, you know, don't feel locked into that. Uh, and on that page, too, you can see all of the great thank you gifts that we have for our listeners, for their support. Um, and, yeah, as we were talking about, like, uh, you know, we, we need your support to keep going. Think of it as kind of like a, like a streaming service. Think of it as like a Netflix or a Hulu. I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm legally allowed to say that, say their names. Let's go on, with it. On the air, but let's go with it. Sure. Um, uh, when you contribute to us, you're getting content back. And the more the more uh, money we raise, the more that we can expand, uh, the more we can uh, switch things up, add more content, and uh, bring you content in new ways. And that's uh, really important mm. for us. 
Right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Are you asking? You're telling. No, you're telling. You're telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you, you don't have to ask it. That is true. And look, the Colin McEnroe show, uh, over 10 years, 11 years now, uh, here on Connecticut Public, Colin and I started, I started just after he did. Uh, both of us, uh, at some point or another, refugees from the newspaper world. Uh, and and he brings his brain. He brings his whole passion. He brings all that he is to this station. It's a wonderful thing. Please do support it. 1-800-584-2788 is the number to call. Thank you so much in advance. Hey, we're back. Oh, by the way, uh, thanks for pledging. If you did during this break, there'll be a chance to do it right uh, at the end of the show today, too. I mean, you're not going to want to miss anything, uh, any of Olga Kazan right now. But like when we're done with that, there'll be a nice chance for you to call 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. When you do that, we get some of the credit because you did it during our time period. Do I sound, do I sound desperate and craven when I say that? Because I am desperate and craven. Uh, it's time to uh, say some thank yous here. One of them is to Cat Pastor. Uh, she is our technical producer. She's here in the building with me on the other side of the glass. I don't know which one of us is the uh, diorama exhibit, but one of us is. Uh, and then uh, the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe show is Betsy Kaplan, uh, which is weird because I'm the senior producer of the Betsy Kaplan show. But anyway, she's the producer of this episode. Uh, and this is an episode about COVID nostalgia, but the things that you will probably or not you, some people will probably miss when the pandemic is over. Uh, there will be certain little experiences and ways of being uh, that you came to cherish that you won't have anymore. So this is actually my second time discussing this essay on the air. Uh, Olga, Olga Kazan is joining us, staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in, the, in an Insider World. That sounds like a, a show episode we should definitely do, uh, and or maybe it's the entire history of our show. Uh, but uh, her uh, essay, You're Going to Miss Zoom When It's Gone, is what we're talking about today. Uh, hi, Olga. Hi, how's it going? Good. So, uh, you know, a lot of people, perhaps starting with me, would look at the title of this and go, nah, <laughs> yeah. no, no. <laughs> so, so make the case in a nutshell that you do make in the essay. Well, I mean, for me, Zoom uh, has just been a nice way of interacting. I like it for work interactions, like um, big meetings or meetings with my boss or things like that. Um, I actually like it for big social interactions. Like I I like it for, you know, um, uh, interacting with like big groups of people. Um, I like that I've been able to connect with friends who live far away. Um, And I actually did my book tour via Zoom. um, And I really um, actually ended up enjoying that a lot more than I thought I would. Well, I, I can say that book companies probably are listening and thinking, yes, book tours by Zoom. Let's keep that going. We won't have to pay anybody's transportation costs. And the, the <laughs> yeah. other good thing about this, I remember Roy Blunt Jr., uh, an old friend of mine, coming off a book tour and saying, basically what happens on a book tour is you catch every cold that exists in every part of the country. You know, this is back when we worried about things like head colds instead of uh, COVID-19. But, yeah, there's there's a lot of ways. And, and some of this I think you would concede and you do concede is tempered or conditioned by uh, your own temperament. You are uh, an introvert, maybe somebody even with a little bit of social anxiety. Yeah, I I have social anxiety when it comes to especially big groups of people and authority figures like bosses. Um, So uh, it's been, uh, I guess a few psychologists have said that it actually weirdly helps people with social anxiety um, to, to, do zoom instead because you don't have all the you know the trappings of like interacting with your boss when you're both like sitting around in your athleisure and um you know uh just 
just sort of like hanging out on a computer. It's it's not as scary. <laughs> right. I mean, I think a lot of it depends on what you want to get out of an encounter, right? I mean, I, I would agree that there's a lot of things that I was forced to do in person back in the in the old times uh, that I don't miss having to do in person. But there's also, I don't know, I've been trying to teach a college seminar on Zoom, and it's a nightmare, partly because you really want to get a kind of free-flowing uh, set of interactions among a specified group of people, and you want to reach people somehow. And I feel as though, I don't know, you feel like you can really reach people I mean, reach people with your urges, your emotions, your your ideas can that you can ignite them the way you maybe could in person. Yeah, I mean, one way that I'm definitely feeling that kind of like Zoom is is not really adequate is um, in reporting, like and especially reporting on people who don't necessarily have good Internet or, you know, did like obvious desire to talk to you like it's it's, you know, <laughs> much better to knock on a door and sit in someone's living room and try to really understand them. Um, than to like, you know, call them up on the phone and, you know, get like these flat quotes and they don't see you and you don't see them like that, you know, um, that part I have really missed. Yeah. I mean, Bob Woodward's whole career is showing up at people's houses and sitting there in their living rooms at 11 o'clock at night waiting for them to bring stuff down from the attic for him to look at. So uh, you you, you can't do that on on Zoom. I I feel as though... um, one of my takeaways from this, and tell me how you feel about it, I feel that what I'm, what's being exposed here is one of the big lies. And the big lie is that you need to be at work for eight hours, five days a week. The truth is you need to be at work sometimes, you know, but that it is, I mean, 40 hours, one size fit all, uh, fits all is this kind of default choice that is not a choice. To me, that's the biggest problem, that we have to acknowledge that, that there, you know, we shouldn't give up our workspaces. We shouldn't stop collaborating uh, interpersonally, in-person, face-to-face, but not everything has to be face-to-face. And there's no reason, there's no way that 40 hours a week or whatever was ever uh, handed down from, you know, from Olympus. Yeah, I mean, I have felt that way for a long time. Like, I'm actually more of a night writer. Like, I do my best writing in the evenings. Um, So it's never made sense to, like, show up at an office at 9 a.m. when I'm, like, groggy and can barely function, you know, but leave right as I'm, like, hitting my stride and, like, doing my best work. So, um, and in general, I don't like being in the office. So uh, I, to me, that has never made sense. So it's been nice to have this period of time when everyone's, everyone's seeing things my way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, No, we have people here, actually, Carmen Baskoff, we just played an essay by her in the previous segment, who, she's the person who really kind of basically doesn't want to be or has trouble working in a big chaotic newsroom with a lot of people talking. So, I mean, the history of Carmen Baskoff working here has been opening a door to what you thought was an unoccupied meeting room and finding Carmen kind of huddling, <laughs> taking shelter there from everybody else. And, you know, I mean, people have different working styles, and we've we've been very, very bad about imagining that. So I don't, I don't know. As you start thinking about your transition back, um, I mean, how, how do you think about it? I mean— you know, setting book tours aside for a second, but I mean, are there parties you're going to go to in a non-virtual way? Are there things that are, are choices that you've made this time that are here to stay? 
Yeah, I mean, um, I definitely am going to go to parties again and go do all the stuff that I, you know, don't like doing. Um, and, you know, because it's good for you to stretch your boundaries. Um, uh, but, you know, I I think that luckily, maybe for me, um, I, a lot of people will be awkward and kind of unsure at first, especially coming out of the pandemic. So I might benefit from like kind of an awkwardness grace period where everyone is um, you know, kind of like not sure if they should hug because is it safe or like, you know, what's standing too close. Um, so uh, I already like worry about that stuff. So everyone will just be where I'm at. <laughs> I think a lot of this does sort of um, devolve into whether you're an, an introvert or an extrovert, although not entirely. As I've, I mean, here in our newsroom, it looks like we're the, the Olympic trials for the metal and introversion are taking place in our newsroom a lot of the time. Public radio people are surprisingly introverted, especially uh, producers of shows like this one. However, uh, our technical, technical producer, Kat Pastor, is not exactly that way. And let's hear uh, something from Kat uh, about how this all affected her. Kat, play Kat. So this might surprise some of my coworkers, but I'm actually an extrovert. I always need to have plans. If there's no plans, I make plans. I've never turned down plans. That is just the way that I live my life. It's mainly driven by extreme FOMO, the fear of missing out. Um, and it's funny because until you're forced to kind of get out of that that pattern and that lifestyle, you don't really know how much it wears you down. So uh, when lockdown happened, I found myself excited for it. It seemed to take a lot of the pressure off of... Uh, off of me in terms of uh, always needing to be doing things. And also, once lockdown happened, I could truly focus on the thing that I love the most, and that is watching TV. And I did so much through my TV watching. For example, I traveled to Mallorca to watch the uh, sexy singles willingly plunge into borderline insanity for the possibility of 50 grand on uh, Love Island, UK. I've seen all 50 states through Aerial America and the world through House Hunters International, two shows that I love so much. <laughs> um, so did I do anything to better myself during quarantine? No, I didn't better myself, but it gave me a look into what I've been missing out on, which is objectively nothing. Um, and I absolutely loved it. So uh, I think that we should extend lockdown for another year just to be safe. <laughs> all right. That's kind of pastor. Yeah. So uh, Olga, react to that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what she said uh, resonates even for, um, uh, you know, an introvert. Uh, you know, I actually also didn't ever really turn down plans. Um, and I, I've kind of enjoyed um, not having to make plans and having a lot more evenings to myself and weekends to myself. Um, and I also really love to watch TV. So I've watched a lot more TV. I've caught up on all those movies that like they say you should watch, but I never did for whatever reason, like both Godfathers, like you don't often have, you know, whatever it is, six hours to watch both Godfather movies, um, but you do during lockdown. So I, I don't know, I guess I'm probably more so than other people seeing some of the upsides of quarantine. <laughs> You will never understand America unless you watch both. You probably have to watch them at least three times. Right. Uh, and, and then you will completely, you won't completely understand what's going on all the time, but you'll at least have the Godfather part of it. And it's so key. And when somebody turns to you and says, this is the business we've chosen, yeah, then you'll, exactly. you'll know that it's Hyman Roth uh, who is being quoted. 
Um, all right. So, so yeah, I feel as though, you know, reading your essay, reading Devin's essay, also in The Atlantic, having these conversations, what I come away with, Olga, is kind of the idea that, you know, it, it isn't that we want to stay in quarantine uh, and it isn't that we 100 percent want to go back to the 21st century schizoid people that we were before quarantine either. But it's it's almost like we need a version of the serenity prayer. You know, it, it, you know, that that whole idea anyway uh, of, of grant me, I don't know, grant me the, the, the serenity to skip things I don't really need to do in person. Grant me the courage to be face-to-face when it's needed uh, and grant me the wisdom to know the difference. You know, it's that wisdom to know the difference part, right? That's maybe what we're all looking for, Olga, is how, how do we make sure that we really do get to the things that where we really ought to be physically present and engaged in face-to-face uh, and we're just not doing it out of habit or being shamed into it? And, and how do we also make sure that we preserve some of the independence, the willingness to say no that we found during this time? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And I like that serenity prayer uh, model. Um, you know, I, after this, I will definitely never take a reporting trip for granted ever again. Like every little interview with a, you know, profile subject, I'll be like, oh, yes, this is so great. Um, uh, but also, um, you know, I think I might feel more empowered to say no to some of those like random house party get togethers that I used to just like drag myself to and then like spend the whole time wondering when can I leave. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I agree that it'll be a tricky balance uh, to strike, but I feel more empowered, I guess, to strike it now. You So you do feel more empowered. I mean, do you worry at all that having not been forced as often to push through social anxieties and do something that's maybe not, you know, at the top of your list, uh, you, you know, you sort of ha- have had an excuse not to have to push back against whatever your own anxieties are. Are you worried that you w- won't recover the energy to do that when it's appropriate? Oh, um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Like, will I actually ever go to another networking reception? <laughs> but that's <laughs> fine just... if you don't. It's fine if you don't. <laughs> I don't know. I get. I, I probably. I probably will. Once once I get work up my uh, anxiety calluses again, I will probably be back out there. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to stop there, but uh, we do recommend that people read Olga Kazan's uh, article. Uh, you're going to miss Zoom when it's gone in the Atlantic. We're going to investigate her book, Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World, which does feel like sort of almost the story of our show all these 12 or 13 years or whatever it's been. Uh, But thanks for listening today. And uh, I hope that we excited a little bit of COVID nostalgia, at least sort of COVID nostalgia to come in you. Hi, I'm Jeff Cohen here with Cat Pastor. This has been the Colin McEnroe Show. You made it all the way to the end because uh, you've enjoyed listening to the show. You've listened to it most likely for years. Uh, Colin has over a decade at the station of really uh, the kind of conversations and explorations that I, I, I dare you to find something else that's remotely close to it. The kinds of conversations that he brings and the the depth on every, I mean, I remember a few years ago the list I had was there were goats in studio. There was beer in studio. It was a whole thing on nuns. I mean, Colin uh, will take things that seem niche 
uh, and really make you want to keep listening and learning more because he is that curious, you're that curious, and that's why you're listening now. What we need you to do is to say, you know what, I value the show, I value Colin, I value its producers, and I value this content. I need to support the organization. And call 1-800-584-2788 and make a pledge of support. Right, Kat? That's right. Or you could go to WMPR.org slash donate if you don't want to talk on the phone. And I know that there's a lot of you out there. I know a lot of people listen to this show because when I started working here, the amount of people who, like I hadn't even heard from, who would who would contact me and be like, oh, you're working on Colin's show now. I was like, how right. do you even know that stalker? But turns out they all just listen to Colin and they love it. <laughs> stalker. <laughs> yeah. How do you even right. know that? I don't put yeah, anything creepy. up about it. <laughs> it's just because he says your name every day. Exactly. That's how Fantastic. they know. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I know that you're all out there. I know that you love the show. Uh, as I was saying earlier, Colin doesn't put anything on the air that he does not think is worthy of you listening to. And he uh, really sticks to that. Um mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, just in general, Connecticut Public needs your support to uh, keep expanding, keep growing, and uh, keep going in general. And, um, you know, we're a listener-funded station. So, uh, you know, um, as much as we hate uh, interrupting your programming, we just have to do it every once in a while to ask for said support. So, again, 1-800-584-2788 or wmpr.org slash donate. Yeah, and, you know, look at, look around. Look around at the programming that you rely on that's local. Look around at your local newspapers. Look around uh, at your local television stations and radio stations. This is unique. Connecticut Public is unique. Our, our content is unique. Uh, and like I said before, in this pandemic, we could have slowed down. We could have um, rested and just done enough to get by and survive. And we just didn't do that. We grew uh, we expanded, and we kept bringing you live, thoughtful talk pro- talk radio programming like the Colin McEnroe Show each and every day. Uh, it hadn't been easy. It hasn't been easy at all, uh, but it's, it is neither has this for anyone. <laughs> so uh, we're all in it together. We need you to be in it with us. Please do. Give us a call, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks. Thanks.